0: slow burn media and evergreen podcast presents who killed a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless most people in dayton were gearing up for the christmas holiday weekend no one would have ever imagined what was about to unfold on the city's west side in the end six people would be dead Laura Taylor started the crime spree by telling the group, let's put some drama in our lives. Tonight, Dayton's Christmas killer, Marvellis Keene, is eating his last meal. Corrections officials say he's dining on steak, shrimp, fried onions, and chocolate cake in a cell in Lucasville, not far from where he'll be Tuesday morning. Keene's three-day murder spree in 1992 left five people dead. Relatives of his victims say he's never showed any remorse for the killings. Becky Grimes, Newsletter 7. Hello and welcome to episode 145 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. When most people think of the holidays, they think of hanging out with friends, family, Possibly giving some gifts, opening some presents, and definitely eating some delicious food. Unfortunately, the people we are talking about this week weren't thinking about those Yuletide traditions. In fact, they were about to terrorize the city of Dayton for multiple days with random killings taking the lives of six people. For those six people, what could have been a time of love became a Christmas nightmare that the city has yet to forget. And the Dayton Daily News was all over this crime in 1992. And they wrote a retrospective on the terror that these four individuals caused a decade after the crime. And it really pieces the puzzles together well. And I wanted to read directly from the article because it is just really well researched and really well done. So I'm going to read verbatim from this Dayton Daily News article from 2002. Quote, it began with a sudden impulse for excitement and an easy itch for easy cash. Before the Christmas weekend ended in 1992, six people would be dead and two others wounded, the bloodiest murder spree in Dayton's history. And the ones who did it got little more than a few dollars, some jewelry, and a pair of gym shoes. Marvelous Keen, 20, and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Laura Taylor, had been inseparable for two weeks, ever since they got drunk and spent the first night together. Now two days before Christmas, they had used up their money for a night at a downtown hotel. Then Taylor came up with an idea. She knew a man on Prescott Avenue who had a job at General Motors, drove a nice car, and always had money, especially for sexual favors. He would let them in his house, and they could rob him. Let's do it, Keene said. He packed up a few things, including two cheap 25 caliber automatic handguns, one nickel-plated, the other black. The night of December 23, 1992, was clear and in the bitter low 20s as the couple left the hotel. Without a car, they walked over a mile over the river to 159 Yuma Place, an apartment in the Inglewood Court Public housing complex where an older man named Bill ran a crack cocaine den. Bill's was where the loosely connected gang that dubbed itself the Downtown Posse crashed and did drugs after a night of drinking and panhandling on Courthouse Square. The nine youths were of different races, different backgrounds, but all were rebe- rebellious, at odds with their parents, and shared the craving for a thrill. Taylor had been expelled from Meadowdale High School four months before and hadn't seen her parents in nearly three weeks. Keene was once a choir boy and a regular churchgoer, and he had just returned to Dayton after 18 months with his father in Los Angeles. His mother had hoped that stay would help him overcome his rage at the murder of his brother, who was fatally shot during a foiled robbery attempt the previous year. Taylor was five feet tall, with long, straightened hair, and had a sweet, almost childlike face. Keen was big and flashy, with a box haircut and a penchant for jewelry, but he could be surprisingly polite, addressing those in authority with yes sir and no sir. From Bill's apartment, Taylor called the man on Prescott Avenue and promised him an orgy. Then she and Keen recruited 20-year-old Heather Nicole Matthews, who was just out of prison in October, and was also reacquainting herself with crack cocaine. Now together, in the biting cold, the trio walked the three miles up Salem Avenue to 34-year-old Joseph W. Wilkerson's house in the 3300 block of Prescott Avenue. There, they robbed and killed their first victim. On Christmas Eve morning, Matthew's boyfriend, 17-year-old Demarcus Maurice Smith, joined the spree, Smith was wanted by police for a variety of parole violations. Another 48 hours would pass before the killer's trail was picked up. And for the families of the victims and the investigators who labored to bring them to justice, Christmas would never feel the same. On Christmas Eve 1992, at about 7 a.m., Keene, Taylor, and Matthews drove Wilkerson's red Buick back to Bill's unloaded the trunk, and then slept at the apartment until noon. Then they got up, went downtown, and spent the afternoon hanging out at Courthouse Square and the arcade. Later that evening, Taylor went to rob a trick. Keenan Smith drove her to Main Street, where she lured one and got into his car. Keenan Smith followed in the Buick. When the car stopped on Neal Avenue, Smith got out of the Buick and shot out the trick's back window, with Taylor still in the car. The trick hightailed it for Main Street, over the bridge, downtown, and into the parking lot of the Dayton Police headquarters on 3rd Street. Keene and Smith followed, but soon quit the chase. The two drove around for a while until Smith decided to look for Taylor. Keene left him out on Main Street. Smith was carrying his gun. Eventually, Keene, Taylor, and Smith all returned to Yuma Place, but left again that night in the Buick, looking for another victim. And they found one, at a public payphone. And this was a brutal and baffling scene. When dispatchers contacted members of the Dayton Homicide Squad at nearly 10.15 that night, Detective Doyle Burke was at his aunt's house for Christmas dinner. Detectives Wade and Tom Lawson, brothers who lived in Miamisburg, were with their families, and Sergeant Larry Grossnickel, was at an evening service at the Happy Corner Church of Brethren in Inglewood. The call was not unusual. Squad members are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Christmas season was no exception. The investigators found a brutal and baffling scene at 517 Neal Avenue. Blood and shell casings, nine in all, lay spilled on the pavement near an open phone booth. Uniformed officers told the Homicide Squad that 18-year-old Danita Goulet, who was on the phone when attacked, had been removed to Grandview Hospital, where she was pronounced dead soon after her arrival. Five bullets had pe- pierced her body. Her shoes and her jacket were all that seemed missing. Witnesses said they had seen two black males running from the scene into a long, dark red car. Quote, we have no idea why this lady was shot or why so many shots were fired, said Wade Lawson, who would be named lead investigator. Quote, sometimes on the job, you can look at the scene and get an idea of why, Burke said. But in some cases, and this is a good example, there is no why. There is just no reason whatsoever. Unknown to investigators, Goulet was the gang's second victim. The first Wilkerson laid dead in his home on Prescott Avenue. The squad queried witnesses and gathered evidence on Neil Avenue, including the empty aluminum casings from the 925 caliber Blazer bullets. Blazer wasn't rare ammunition, but it was cheap, and the casings couldn't be reloaded with new powder and a bullet and then reused. Most people used it for target practice, not for killing. Though seemingly unimportant at the time, the casings would supply the one thread that would tie together the Long String of Murders. We shot her! We shot her! Late that night, the apartment on Yuma Avenue was in party mode. Bill wasn't there, but most of the gang was, including Wendy Cottrell, 16, and her 18-year-old boyfriend Marvin Washington. Matthews was there, too, recovering from a fight with her old boyfriend, 28-year-old Jeffrey Wright, who had just stormed out. Suddenly, Keene, Taylor, and Smith came bursting in. Taylor was holding Gulette's bag and clothing. We shot her! We shot her! She excitedly told Matthews. She and Smith went through her bag and clothing they had taken. They found. 50 cents. Yeah, we laid her out, Smith bragged. He put on Goulet's Fila gym shoes and discovered they fit. He kept them on. Smith still had the twenty-five caliber automatic that Keane had given him and liked to flash it. Taylor now had a thirty-two caliber Derringer stolen from Wilkerson's garage. The apartment on Yuma contained other items stolen from Wilkerson's home, including a portable color television and a microwave. An half hour before midnight, Wright returned to the apartment looking for Matthews. He dragged her by the hair to a bedroom. Smith followed, and they battled over Matthews. Smith chased Wright out of the upstairs apartment and fired at him as he raced across an open field. As Wright hit the ground and tried to play dead, Smith walked up and pulled the trigger on the automatic until the gun emptied. Shot four times in the legs, Wright got up and ran for the neighbor's house, who helped him into the 5th District Police Station on Salem Avenue. He would get treatment and f- survive. The incident must have gotten Taylor thinking about one of her former boyfriends, Richard M- Richmond Maddox. Maddox had money and a car. And now we're on Christmas Day, 1992. Having spent most of the night on the Goulet case, the Homicide Squad members caught some fitful daytime sleep and were trying to enjoy Christmas evening with their families until dispatchers called at 8.50 p.m. The Lawson brothers were the first to arrive at the scene in Dayton View, where a blue Chevy Caprice had smashed into a tree in front of a house at 2256 Benton Avenue. The driver's body, a young black male, was slumped across the floor by the front seat. Nothing had appeared suspicious to uniformed officers, but doctors at Good Samaritan Hospital found a 32 caliber bullet in the skull of the driver, 19-year-old Maddox. The Lawsons and other investigators talked to neighbors and possible witnesses. One John Scroggins said he had emerged from his house soon after hearing the crash, He said he saw two black males standing next to the smashed car. Quote, he wrecked your car, the taller man said to the shorter Scroggins, recalled. When Scroggins shouted at the men that he had called the police, the two calmly walked toward Salem Avenue. The men were Keenan Smith. Matthews picked them up in the Buick. To the Lawsons and the other investigators, it was one of the most bizarre Christmas murders. And it didn't even hint at a link to the brutal killing of Goulet. This time, the killer had used a 32 caliber ammunition and not the 25 caliber ammunition that was found at the scene, and the death was delivered with a single shot. Quote, a shot him in the head. When Matthews picked up Taylor in the parking lot of a Salem Avenue shopping center, Taylor was agitated, trying to unjam her Derringer. Matthews told her to calm down and tell her what had happened. Quote, I shot him in the head, she said. I shot him. Taylor had lured Maddox from his parents' home by promising to go with him to a hotel. When Maddox noticed a car following with Matthews, Keenan, Smith inside, Taylor said they were cousins just making sure she got into the hotel safe. But Maddox became suspicious, stopped for a minute on Benton Avenue, then hit the accelerator. That's when Taylor put the Derringer to his right temple and pulled the trigger. Taylor threw open the passenger door and rolled out of the car, careening before it hit a tree. Her right leg was injured from the jump, and she ran limping all the way to Salem Avenue. Now we reach December 26, 1992, and we are still reading directly from the Dayton Daily News retrospective. After the shooting of Wright on Yuma Place late Christmas Eve, the gang changed its choice of hangout to elude police. Now they gathered at the Cummler Avenue home of Sandra Pinson, the mother of another gang member, 16-year-old Dion, and the aunt of yet another 17-year-old Nicholas Woodson. The youths talked about ways to get quick cash, then took off in two cars, one following the other. But sometime between 1 and 2 a.m., the cars separated. Riding in the Buick, Matthews, Taylor, Keene, and Smith decided to drive to a bank on Salem Avenue and rob someone using the ATM machine. After a long wait, a driver finally pulled up to the ATM, but suspicious of the other car in the lonely parking lot, drove away without taking any money. So the gang moved on and pulled into a BP station on Salem Avenue, where they spotted a young woman pumping air into her tires. Keenan Smith burst out of the car, Keen pulled his silver automatic, and Smith said, Shoot her! The woman ran without shots being fired, and Keen and Smith got into her car, a black Dodge Shadow. Both cars returned to Cummler Avenue. They still had no cash. Keen and Smith decided they would rob a store. Taylor chose the Target, a little place on West 5th Street, the short-stop mini-market, where just two people worked. It was isolated and easy. Matthews gave Smith her gun and drove the four of them there. Taylor walked in first to case the place. The plan was, if she didn't come out after several minutes, it meant the coast was clear. Taylor bought chewing gum, then walked to the back of the store and took out a Chili willy fruit juice from the refrigerator case. She asked how much the Chili Willie was. Sarah Abraham, the clerk behind the counter, And the working mother of an 11-year-old girl answered 35 cents. Taylor was a nickel short, so she went up to Jimmy Thompson, 71, who was a regular at the store and sometimes did errands for Abraham and her assistant, Jones Pettis. Thompson gladly gave the sweet-looking girl a nickel. Then Keenan Smith entered the store. After a long Christmas night work in the Maddox case, the Homicide Squad was called out a third time at 8 a.m., barely enough time for breakfast, shower, and a shave. The scene at the shortstop mini-mart was a frightening mess, especially behind the counter where Abraham had been shot. She had been removed to St. Elizabeth Medical Center and was clinging to life with two bullet wounds, one through her mouth, the other into the top of her head. Unfortunately, she would die five days later. The gang fled with a whopping $44. But this time detectives had two prime, excellent witnesses. Pettis had been shot in the stomach but was still conscious. Thompson had escaped injury by faking a hit and slumping over the counter. Quote, we had good descriptions of both the suspects and the getaway car, Wade Lawson said. It was a blue Pontiac Grand Am the second of two cars stolen from Wilkerson, whom the squad still had no idea was dead because no one had reported him missing. And the killers left an intriguing clue. The gunman used a twenty five caliber blazer ammunition, the same caliber and brand that had killed Goulette. But until the shells had undergone ballistics tests, there was no way to be certain it was a match. But as more witnesses were interviewed, the killers' descriptions began to overlap. Burke left the shortstop with a nagging feeling they would be hearing from the same shooters again. Back at Cummler Avenue, Keenan and Smith were getting scared. Too many people knew too much, and one of them could snitch to police. Keenan and Smith moved the Blue Grand Am to Catalpa Drive, the next street over from Cummler, then switched license plates between the stolen Dodge Shadow and Wilkerson's car to try to throw off the police. But Smith, Smith didn't feel safe, especially from Cottrell and her boyfriend, Washington. Quote, we ought to unload a clip in Marvin, Smith said. He was convinced that Washington had told police he had shot right Matthews' old boyfriend. Five gang members, Keene, Smith, Taylor, Matthews, and now Nick Woodson, crammed into the back of the Black Shadow and drove to Bill's at Yuma Place. There, they invited Cottrell and Washington to drive around and get something to drink. Behind Keene, who was driving, sat Woodson, with Cottrell in the middle, sitting on Washington's lap and Taylor by the door. Cottrell was pregnant with Washington's child. They drove first to a liquor drive through and passed drinks around the car. Keene soon decided to visit his brother's grave and drove them over to the cemetery on Germantown Street. Woodson, who sensed what would happen next, asked to be taken home. Keene dropped him off on Limestone Avenue, and the remaining six drove around until Keene happened to see an open gate at a city gravel storage area off Ridgely Drive. Keene pulled through the gate and stopped the car. Keene got out, drank some wild Irish rose, then Smith got out and drank his Thunderbird, Keene told Cottrell to get out of the car. Smith told Washington to do the same. Keene then pulled his gun, then Smith. Quote, we didn't snitch, Cottrell pleaded. We did not snitch. Can you come in and talk? Now, that was what the headline was for the next section of the article. And it goes on to state, Tipster's calls were flooding in the downtown homicide office by that afternoon. Grossnickel, who, like the rest of the squad, hadn't had a decent night's sleep in three days, was going through a mountain of paperwork for the Abraham case when dispatch sent through a call from a man named Nick Woodson. After years of investigating homicides, Grossnickel had developed an instinct about good tipsters. Sometimes when you talk to people, there's just more clarity to their voice. You know what I mean? This guy, I could tell he was in trouble, and he knew it. Quote, what have you got for me, Grossnickel asked. Woodson said he was very scared of some people who were trying to get him to help rob and kill people. Quote, can you come in and talk, Grossnickel asked. Woodson said he couldn't. So Grossnickel took the information over the phone. Woodson, it turned out, was for real. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. There are literally thousands of levels to play and tons of cute characters to collect. There are currently 7,000 levels available. One of the coolest parts about Best Fiends is there's something new going on all the time, whether it's a new challenge, more levels, or a fun monthly event. It's clear I love to solve puzzles, and Best Fiends offers me a new challenge every day. Best Fiends is way more fun than any other matching puzzle game out there. It's also one of those games that makes time fly, and it's totally free to download. If you're tired of the same old puzzle games, start playing Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual game that challenges your brain with fun puzzle levels. It's the perfect pick-me-up when I need a break from the holiday action. Let's say you don't have any Wi-Fi. No problem. Play Best Fiends wherever and whenever you want with offline mode. For a true crime researcher and podcast host, I've discovered moving through these puzzle levels provides me a mindful experience. Plus, collecting all those different characters is another reason I turned to Best Fiends for a challenge. With over 100 million downloads, you don't want to miss out on this game. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. We may have moved past 2020, but 2021 is still looking fairly grim. But today I'm happy to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything holding you back or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And it's really convenient. Because in this current state that we live in, it just has to be. So now you can get help on your own time, at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule a secure video or phone session, or you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if for whatever reason you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. So if you're suffering from depression or anxiety, stress, anger, Relationship issues, heck, you're not getting a good night's sleep, or have LGBT matters, or just low self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The thing I like the most is it's actually affordable. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com who. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and then you get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com who. All right, we are back. He confirmed much of what the investigators already knew and added more. He gave Grossnickel the full name of Demarcus Smith and Matthew's first name, Heather, but could only describe Keene and Taylor. He also said the gang had been driving several cars in the past few days, a red Buick, a blue Grand Am, and a black Dodge Shadow. Woodson said he knew where there was yet another body, a white man in a home off Salem Avenue. The gang had taken Woodson there to party while the man lay dead. Grossnickel told Woodson that for his own safety, officers would bring him downtown for further questioning. You'd better quick be quick about it, Woodson said. Grossnickel dispatched the Lawson brothers, who were on Fifth Street fishing, finishing interviews in the Abraham case. So when the Lawsons got to Woodson's home on Limestone Avenue, Woodson actually had already left for the downtown police station. But a neighbor of Woodson's was talking. Just before leaving, Woodson had told the woman he was afraid some killers were coming to pick him up, most likely in a black Dodge shadow. Dispatchers spread the information to patrol units with a reminder to use caution. The four suspects in the car were clearly armed and dangerous. In his downtime, Sergeant Huber liked to drive his cruiser along the streets of northwest Dayton, checking on businesses and homes, keeping an eye out for trouble and stolen cars. At about 2.45 p.m. the day after Christmas, Hoover was driving along Cornell Drive when he glanced south down Cummler Avenue and saw something that caught his eye, a black Dodge shadow he had never seen in the neighborhood before. The car was in front of 726 Cummler. Hoover called in the license number, FKO 727, to see if it belonged to the stolen shadow. A check showed the plate belonged to a blue 1989 Pontiac Grand Am, registered to Wilkerson. Huber, then a 16-year veteran of the streets, quickly realized the suspects had switched the plates. He turned down the alley in front of the shadow, where he intended to turn around and keep an eye on the car, but at the end of the alley, he stumbled on another find, the blue 1989 Grand Am without its rear plate. Huber got out, checked the front license plate, FMB-18, and recognized it as the stolen shadow reported earlier that day. Huber radioed the information to dispatchers and called for more crews to assist in surveillance. He was in the alley when he saw the black Dodge shadow take off. Huber called on his radio and he raced to the cruiser. Quote suspect vehicle on the move. Repeat suspect vehicle moving. When Huber reached Cummler in his cruiser, he was surprised to find the shadow had traveled just two blocks. Moments later, the car stopped, and one of the four suspects got out and ran. Unknown to Huber, it was Smith, fleeing back to the Pinsons' house on Cummler Avenue. Huber focused on the shadow and the other three suspects. By the time the shadow turned east on Riverview Avenue, backup units were closing in. Huber turned on his emergency lights. At the same time, the Lawson brothers in the area to pick up Woodson were traveling west on Riverview. They blocked the shadow with their unmarked car. The shadow stopped. Huber jumped from his cruiser with his gun drawn, careful to stand behind its door. An unmarked police van pulled up beside Huber. Three plainclothes officers with riot shotguns emerged from its side door. Three more backup units pulled up behind Huber. Every officer had his gun pointed at the shadow. Shouts of, quote, get out of the car, ricocheted through the air. The suspects came out slowly and peacefully. They found Keene's 25 caliber nickel plated handgun under the driver's seat. One of Wendy Cottrell's delicate gold necklaces was around Keene's neck. He was also wearing Danita Goulet's red and white plaid jacket. In his pocket was a commemorative pocket knife that matched knives Wilkerson gave to his male relatives. Soon, a woman told Detective Terry Pearson where the man who fled from the car had gone, the Pinson address on Cummler. Pearson and and Detective Frank Nankaville arrived at the Cummler address and asked Sandra Pinson if they could come in. She said fine. Pearson asked if anyone else was home. No, Pinson said. But the detectives heard steps coming downstairs was a young black male wearing a pair of green slacks. No shirt, no shoes. Who are you? Pearson asked. Dion, he said. I live here. Sandra Pinson said nothing. Quote, could we check the rest of the house? Sandra said they could. Upstairs, they found Earl Strickland, Sandra Pinson's boyfriend. Strickland told the police officers that the man in the green pants was not Sandra's son, Dion but the person they were looking for. So Pearson and Nankaville arrested the young man, whom they later learned was Smith. Before they took him to headquarters, the detectives had him get his clothes that he had put in the bedroom closet. Among the items there were Goulet's Fila gym shoes. Sandra Pinson told the detectives that the gang had been living in her home the last few days. She and Strickland had been too afraid to even come downstairs because they all had guns. She said her son, Dion, had been arrested on a traffic violation with a stolen car given to him by Keene, a red 1974 Buick. Sandra Pinson showed them her son's traffic tickets. Pearson called in the registration on the stolen car. It belonged to Joseph W. Wilkerson in the 3300 block of Prescott Avenue. Police converged on Wilkerson's home at around 3 p.m. and found no signs of forced entry. But the door was unlocked, and no one was answering. In the living room, they saw furniture overturned and items scattered. A TV set appeared to be missing. Dust on an empty stand, the only clue. The kitchen in the back was an even bigger mess. Cabinets open, their contents spilled. Silverware, magazines, and coins were strewn about. A small microwave appeared to be missing from its spot. Room after room had been ransacked. In the back bedroom, Wilkerson's body lay on the bed in the middle of the room. Arms spread-eagled, his wrists were tied to bedposts with electrical cord, his face and chest covered with bloody quilts. He had apparent gunshot wounds to the right eye, another to the left chest. In the bed's tangled sheets, Burke found what he had feared. An aluminum casing for a twenty-five caliber blazer bullet. Quote, that was the culmination of everything, Burke said. We realized we had been, what we had been dealing with all along. The four suspects, now in custody downtown, were interrogated in separate rooms. Keane, Smith, and Matthews volunteered nearly everything. Nearly because no one mentioned what had happened to Cottrell and Washington at the city gravel storage area. Then again, the investigators knew nothing of those murders and hadn't asked. Keen was cooperative, even respectful, answering yes sir and no sir, a throwback perhaps to his choir boy days. It was hard to believe with his demeanor that he was responsible for these murders, Wade Lawson said. Matthews, who had never pulled a trigger but often drove the getaway car, gave the most complete statement to avoid a death sentence. But Taylor, tight-mouthed and defiant, wanted a lawyer. None, quote, none of them showed any remorse. But at least with the other three, you got the impression that they realized the consequences of their actions, Burke said. But Laura Taylor couldn't have cared less, or at least it seemed to me. A cold-hearted girl, Wade Lawson called Taylor. It had been Taylor's idea to rob the shortstop Minimart, police interviews would disclose. She didn't shoot anyone there, but she had cased the place for Keenan Smith. It had been Taylor's idea to entice Wilkerson with sex, then rob him in his home. After Keene shot Wilkerson in his chest, Taylor finished him off with a second shot to his head, using the Derringer she found in his home. It had been Taylor's idea to rob and kill her old boyfriend, Richmond Maddox. She used the same Derringer to put a bullet in his head. Perhaps the most cold-blooded of all, Keene said Taylor had watched as he put a gun into the mouth of her friend, Cottrell, and fired. But because of her age and her sex, and perhaps her petite size... Local civil rights activists viewed Taylor as an unwilling accomplice. They pressed for her release, and she was transferred to the Youth Detention Center. There she was counseled by the Reverend William Head, chief investigator of the Dayton branch of the NAACP. Soon after, Head would supply police with a final word to complete the grisly case. At 4.45 p.m., Burke with his family in North Dayton, sitting down to Christmas dinner two days late, He felt good that the four suspects were off the streets. Then the phone rang. When he heard the Reverend Head had paged him, his heart sank. The Reverend never bothered him at home unless it was urgent. Two more bodies, Head said. At about 5.30 p.m., investigators gathered at the city gravel storage area south of Richley Drive. It was in a woods across the street from Luis Troy School. The gate to the complex was open. Just beyond a large pile of dirt and gravel, two bodies lay. Again, Cottrell had been shot in the mouth and through the ear. Her shoes were missing. She was on her back, her coat open, and the inside pockets pulled out. Above her head, a foot away, were three spent twenty-five caliber blazer casings. Eight feet away was Washington's body, also on his back, shot several times in his side and in the head. Seven- 25 caliber casings, silhouetted his body. Cottrell's mother identified her from a photograph. She hadn't seen her 16-year-old daughter in three weeks. Keene, Taylor, Matthews, and Smith were convicted of murder. The trial and sentencing went smoothly thanks to a strong investigation and willing witnesses. Barring a miracle, none of the four will ever see the outside of a jail cell. Taylor and Matthews are in the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville. Taylor will be eligible for parole in 2098, Matthews in 2132. Smith at the Mansfield Correctional Institute won't be up for parole until 2123. And Keene, at the time of this writing, was on death row at Mansfield. Grossnickel called the investigation a great one, in part because of all the information we got from citizens. A great investigation, but the worst crime the investigators have seen in their careers. Some might argue that dubious honor belongs to Samuel Moreland, convicted in one of Dayton's bloodiest mass murders after he killed two women and three children in South Ardmore Avenue home in 1985., Quote, "But that was a one-time act, Groatsnickel said. He didn't have time to think about it the next day and then kill another one and think about it the next day and kill another and on and on. Alton Coleman, another killer, comes to mind, Burke said. He and his girlfriend, Deborah Denise Brown, killed at least seven people in Ohio and Indiana during a multi-state rampage of rape, robbery, and murder in 1984. They assaulted two couples in Dayton but killed no one here. But the Christmas killers in Dayton did it clearly for the thrill. And when it seemed their own friends might turn them in, they killed them without mercy. Quote, this was a game. This was for fun, Burke said. Quote, they had taken these people's lives just the way we swat a fly. They wanted the violence, and everything else seemed secondary. Grossnickel, 56, retired as head of the homicide squad, and soon after, his own son, 25-year-old Officer Jason Grossnickel was shot and killed in the line of duty in 1996. Grossnickel feels all four gang members deserve the death penalty, but he also realizes that no punishment can bring back the victims or satisfy their loved ones. I realize how hard it is for people to go on, he said. And again, That was an incredible piece of journalism from the Dayton Daily News from 2002. Unfortunately, I do not have the reporter's name, but I will provide a link to the site that I did find this article because I really do believe it sums up this case as well as possible. Because, you know, a lot of times you have... Uh, investigators basically chasing their tail. And this one was just one of those cases where people were just following one murder after the other and waiting for somebody to slip up. And luckily they finally did. And again, just the fact that these were two adults and two juveniles that were charged in the murders, it's just crazy. And, you know, they're trying to find out a motive and, you know, they... Look at all these different investigators and they talk to different uh, psychiatrists. Uh, I mean, Charles Benson Haver of Wright State University in Dayton said, There may be more to it than that. Uh, any of the four may have been victims of child or drug abuse, or their sex may have motivated them in part, he said. Quote, These young fellows get out of control. They have too much of a primitive, aggressive ego that hasn't been civilized. And that gets reinforced with their peer relationships, he said. Quote, they push each other and bring out the worst in each other. The females involved in the case got wrapped up into this Bonnie and Clyde sort of thing to impress their male friends, he said. Now, I'm going to argue with that just a little bit because it just sounds a little bit not quite politically correct and kind of racist, to be honest with you. So take that with a grain of salt. Then you have Don Gordon, who is a professor of psychology at The Ohio University in Athens, and he said peer pressure could have provoked the violence. Quote, it's a shared adrenaline experience, he said. The fact that they're all so young also may be telling. Quote, they're adolescents forming their own identity. These kids are not threatened by the loss of approval of a parent figure, he said. Patrick Donnelly, an associate professor of criminology at the University of Dayton, said that those who commit such crimes quote, are very much on the margins of society. They experience a great deal of hopelessness and despair. These suspects don't have an awful lot of value on their own lives, so they don't see other people's lives being as any more valuable. Now, again, the way that this case worked out is there was a lot of evidence. And the one thing that I want everybody to remember is there were a lot of people impacted by this case. And it's important to understand that when you have people like, you know, Marvelous Keen and, uh, you know, uh, Heather Matthews and Laura Taylor, I mean, it's just like, these people are the worst of the worst. I mean, let's be honest. They committed... Murders. I mean, they killed Wilkerson, Abraham, Maddox. Um, It's it's just disgusting. And you know, luckily we do live in a state where there is such a thing as the death penalty. And if there was ever such a reason for the death penalty to exist, it was for cases like this. And that's exactly what happened to Mister Marvelous Keen, because he was found guilty on. 20 counts of murder, robbery, burglary, burglary, and other related charges. Now he showed little emotion at his sentence, but did wink at his family as he was led away. Luckily for all of us, Marvelous Keene was executed by lethal injection at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville on July 21st, 2009. He was 36. 31 years after the murders, Matthews, Smith, and Taylor are still in prison. Parole is unlikely. Before we wrap up for the week, I wanted to share a timeline put out by the Dayton Daily News because I've spent so much time talking about them this week, and they have done such a fabulous job of covering this tragic spree. And this timeline was done by reporter Lisa Powell. And again, four people were convicted of these killings. And that was Marvelous Keene, Heather Nicole Matthews, to Marcus Maurice Smith, and Laura Taylor. Now, the first victim, Thursday, December 24th, Joseph Wilkerson, shot to death inside his home at 3321 Prescott Avenue. He was not found until Saturday, December 26th. The shooting at the payphone, Danita Goulette, 18, of 709 Five Oaks Avenue, shot numerous times while standing in the payphone. There was the non-fatal shooting of Jeffrey Wright on December 24th, and he was shot four times outside the 157 Yuma place. He survived. Then there was the shooting in the car. Richmond Maddox, 19, of 3938 Larkspur Drive, was shot once in the head while driving his car on Benton Avenue. He died from his gunshot. The shooting at the Mini Market on December 26th. Three people entered the shortstop Mini Market, at 1201 West 5th Street and shoot clerk Sarah Abraham and customer Jones Pettis during a robbery. Abraham dies five days later while Pettis survives. And then on December 26th, the suspects are arrested after a police sergeant spotted the Dodge Shadow. So, the final victims are found on December 27th when police receive a tip and soon find 16-year-old an 18-year-old, that was Wendy Cottrell and Washington, shot to death at a city-owned gravel dump at 1654 Richley Drive. So the bottom line of this week's episode is don't go on murder sprees and ruin the lives of hundreds of people who knew these victims. The city has never recovered. Marvelous Keene got what he deserved, and so have the others. I hate to bring you such a downer episode, but hey, like I said at the beginning, criminals don't take the holidays off. And that will do it for this week. Look for the captain on a special holiday episode of Who Killed? Thank you to BetterHelp.com for sponsoring this week's episode. If you'd like to save 10%, please use my promo code WHO. And thank you to Best Fiends for being a sponsor as well. Download the app today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Also, I will be in attendance to CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas. That is running from April 29th to May 1st. Get your tickets today. I should have a promo code for you soon. Anyway, you guys know I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. So if you enjoy this podcast and the other shows, you can help support by using my paypal account at williamhuffman3 or you can contribute to the show via the venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3 as you've heard me say before every contribution big or small does help keep these slow burn media podcasts running you can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Again, those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover, such as Amy Mihaljevic's In the Spotlight. So if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening. As always, until next time, be healthy and stay safe.